<laughs> she doesn't want to hear it. At least it's not on worry, it's on impatience. <laughs> Give me patience, but I want it now. You've all seen that little cartoon. If the Bible was not true to life, it would lose much of its value because it would be of very little help to us in our practical everyday lives where the rubber meets the road. If the great men and women of the scriptures were portrayed as flawless, if their sins were never mentioned, if their evil deeds were simply whitewashed over, then we would not be able to learn from their mistakes, would we? Nor would we benefit from the lessons that God taught to them through their mistakes. And also, we would very possibly think of ourselves as impossible cases because we would know, of course, as we all do, we would know our own inadequacies, and therefore we would think that we could never reach the height of perfection of the great men and women of faith that we find in the Bible, if none of their flaws were ever given to us. However, the Bible does not gloss over the sins of even the greatest men and women of faith to be found in its pages. Instead, it paints their pictures with very open, honest, detailed strokes. We are told of their victories right along with their failures, and we are told of their times of obedience as well as their times of disobedience. In the life of Abraham, we have already found this to be true, haven't we? We have found it to be true uh, in his delay in Haran, in his detour to Egypt, and also with his despondencies of Genesis chapter 15 that we looked at last time, last week. And we will again find it to be true in Genesis chapter 16, which presents probably the darkest spot of all in Abraham's life. Sarah, as you probably know, became very impatient in waiting on God to fulfill his promise to Abraham regarding an heir, a son. And very sadly, Abraham allowed her to convince him to take matters into their own hands and have a child through Sarah's handmaid named Hagar. And so Ishmael, the father of the Arabs, was born. So our, mo our lesson this morning... On Genesis chapter 16, which consists of 16 verses, is entitled The Fruit of Impatience. And as we look at these 16 verses, we're going to discuss, first of all, the scheme proposed, then the scheme's problems, and last of all, the servant pursued, and that servant is Hagar. So very quickly, let's just get right into it and look at verses 1 to 4 on the scheme proposed. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. We'll stop right there. The scheme proposed. One of the greatest tests that every Christian will sooner or later encounter in his or her spiritual walk with the Lord is the test of patience. Does anybody want to raise their hand who has not had that test? <laughs> You'd have to be about maybe one month old not to have had, well, not even that. They get impatient wanting to be fed, don't they? God's promises, as we have talked about before, God's promises are not always immediately realized. Blessings do not immediately, instantly, always follow obedience. Key words in the Christian life are patience and delay. So we must learn to wait on God and to develop our patience. We must know that his delays are not necessarily denials. Now, admittedly, patience is a very difficult matter because we are not on the same timetable as God is on. He's beyond time. So, you know, to us, things like, seem like they take forever. To him, it's nothing. Nor can we see the end from the beginning, as he can see. So we do not always know how he is going to resolve situations or how he's going to answer prayers. 
So many, if not most believers, sort of simply just get tired of waiting for God to move in their lives. And therefore, as Sarah did in Genesis chapter 16, they decide to take matters into their own hands in order to solve them. Unfortunately, when they do this, generally they cause a multitude of new problems, not only for themselves as was the case with Sarah, but also for others as well. And those problems are frequently painful and serious ones, which sometimes have rippling effects for many, many years. Sarah's impatience in having a child has resulted in a conflict between the Jews and the Arabs, which continues to this very day, some 4,000 years later. More than anything in life, Sarah wanted to have a child. And in her day, it was a sign of dishonor and reproach to remain childless. Children, especially sons, were viewed by the people as a sign of God's blessing. But Sarah, as we know from chapter 11, verse 30, Sarah had been barren throughout her young childbearing years. And she may have, in her mind, she may have, after a while, resolved herself, you know, to to live with her barrenness. But then suddenly she was given fresh hope, new hope, because God spoke to her husband and told him that he would be the father of many nations. He had told Abraham that he was to carry on the promised line of the the seed of the woman, the Messiah. And so Sarah's heart must have been full of fresh hope. Well, you know, maybe after all, I will have a child. But then came the doubts. After years of waiting to have a child, even Abraham began to wonder if he had misunderstood God. And so remember last week, he asked God about this heir that he was promised. Was it to be Eliezer of Damascus? But then God made it very clear. When he answered Abraham, made it very clear that no, the heir was not to be Eliezer, but a son from his own body. So Sarah's hopes rose again. But then, as the events of chapter 16 now tell us, those hopes didn't last for very long. When she didn't get pregnant any time soon after hearing God's promise to Abraham about having a flesh and blood son, she grew impatient. And her impatience resulted in some wrong thinking. She began to question whether God's promise really did involve her. In fact, she became convinced that God's promise of a son to Abraham did not include her. In her words to Abraham that we find here in uh, verse 2, she expressed her great disappointment in God. You know, she's sort of, in a way, blaming God for having restrained her from having a child. And it was, in fact, God who did close her womb, right? But her attitude wasn't the greatest in, in the way she blamed him. But she was obviously full of a lot of pent-up emotions when she then approached Abraham with her proposal to have a child through her Egyptian handmaid named Hagar. So Sarah's impatience caused her to begin to rationalize in ways that impatience can also cause you and I to do. She began to try to second-guess God, which is always a dangerous thing to do. She thought to herself, to herself, well, perhaps God is waiting for us to do something. I mean, after all, doesn't God help those who help themselves? You hear people quote that a lot. It's not in the Bible. <laughs> God helps those who can't help themselves is what it really is. But people will say, well, doesn't he uh, help those who help themselves? And doesn't God expect us to do all that we can do? And then he will do his part. Well, this kind of reasoning will often lead a person to run ahead of God and to act before he or she should. Impatience has caused many a man and woman to fall or to fail in their behavior and in their plans and in their actions because they uh, don't wait upon God and upon his timing and upon his will to make everything perfectly clear before they run ahead and do whatever they do. Truth regarding God's will is always, always, always based on what? This book right here. 
truth regarding his will is always based on his word and not on man's wisdom and not on man's rationalizing. God's word had made it perfectly clear that Abraham's son was to come from his own seed, his own body. Now, because Sarah was Abraham's wife, And because God had instituted marriage as a monogamous relationship, one man for one wife, um, I mean one wife for one man, Sarah was wrong in thinking that God's promise would not include her. She was wrong also in thinking that God could not open her womb, even at her age. And she was wrong, of course, in not waiting on God, but instead taking matters into her own hands. Sarah's impatience, which was the result of her unfulfilled desire to have a child and her mistaken thinking, then resulted in a carnal solution. Her scheme involved urging Abraham to really commit an immoral act by taking a second wife. And this scheme, of course, was a worldly solution because it was, in that day and time, it was an accepted practice of society uh, to take a second wife. Polygamy was very common in that day. Furthermore, her proposal was in line with a very widely practiced custom which was found in the Code of Hammurabi. And that custom was based upon... um, The fact that if a woman could not bear a child to her husband, then the husband could legally produce a child for his wife through her handmaid. So it was all legal, according to the Code of Hammurabi. So in Sarah's proposal to Abraham to impregnate Hagar, her intention was to actually take that child to then be her own and raise it as her own child. So it was kind of a surrogate Um, mother situation, which we will discover terribly failed. Now, we can almost see how the wheels of Sarah's mind were turning. She believed, she definitely believed God's promise to Abraham about bearing a son who would carry on the line of the promised seed. But she convinced herself that she was not to be a physical part of that promise. So Hagar was the natural solution, especially since there would not even be any scorning from, from the society. On the contrary, what society did scorn and despise in that day was not having any children at all. So worldly wisdom would agree that Sarah's thinking was very logical, but her idea was to follow a custom of the world and not the word of God. And so it was wrong. Her scheme involved following a worldly plan of action and not an action which would glorify the Lord. So just because something may be legal and even if something is successful because Hagar did conceive, but that does not mean that it is going to be approved by God. As we look further into the scripture, we're going to find that God never, ever did refer to Hagar as Abraham's wife. She was not ever. She was referred to as a bondwoman five times in Galatians 4. She's called Sarai's maid, even in this chapter. She is never referred to as Abraham's wife. Now, the sad thing is, the really sad thing, is that Abraham permitted Sarah to convince him that her idea was very possibly the manner in which God had intended for him to bear the promised son. The end of Genesis 16:2 says what? And Abram hearkened unto the voice of Sarai. Who does that remind you of? Yes, reminds me of Adam when he hearkened to the voice of Eve. Rather than going out to the altar and beseeching God for direction and for wisdom in this situation, Abraham accepted the carnal, worldly reasoning of his wife. He accepted a solution which was an activity of the flesh, a solution which pointed to Hagar rather than to God. 
So just as the devil had used Eve to get to Adam, he likewise used Sarah to get to Abram. And the falls of both men, Adam and Abram, have left the world with tragic results ever since. Women, therefore, please, please be very careful in what you attempt to persuade your husbands to do. Because we do have a big influence over our men. And we need to be very wise and very careful in what we try to get them to do. So that's a warning to us. Verse 3 tells us that Sarah brought her handmaid to Abram to be his wife. Now remember Hagar was one of those servants which Abraham had received where? (laughs) Down in Egypt when he had made that detour to Egypt. When he had failed to trust God's provision during a famine in the land of Canaan. And then he had lied about Sarah being his sister and not his wife. And that's when he picked up Hagar. Because Sarah's plan with Hagar not only seemed logical, but it also agreed, as I said, with the Hammurabi Code, and because it also had his wife's permission, and that's a pretty amazing thing, he's, he's allowed to have a, uh, adultery with a young, probably attractive woman, and he has his wife's own permission, and because it appealed to his flesh, Abraham did have physical relations with the young Egyptian handmaid, and she did conceive. So the impatience of both Sarah and Abraham resulted in some terrible consequences, some of which were apparent immediately, as we'll see, they had immediately tension in the tent, but some of which would not be felt until, you know, many, many years later. Well, actually, for literally millenniums to follow, we have felt the results of what they did. Uh, Every time you see on the news that a Jew is killed by an Arab, or every time you read of an Arab being killed by a Jew, it's a result, really, ultimately, of the impatience of Sarah and Abraham. Furthermore, the false religion of Islam, which is the most militant religion on the face of the earth, especially against Jews and Christians, was founded by an Arab, a descendant of Ishmael, um, who, of course, was the seed that Hagar born, bore. It was founded by an Arab named Mohammed. Sinful behavior, which is a result of impatience, always bears a very heavy price tag. So we really, really need to develop our patience. It can be very dangerous. It did not take long at all for Sarah's scheme to begin to cause some problems. And these problems were like most problems. They were swift in coming, but very slow to leave. So we move to the scheme's problems. And under this section, we're going to look at Hagar's pride, Sarah's anger, and Abraham's leaderlessness. So we'll begin by looking at Hagar's pride in verse the end of verse 4. After it says, And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. Then it says, And when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. So the harmony of Abraham's home was gone when Sarah's scheme succeeded to accomplish what she and Abraham had rationalized would be the solution to their childless situation. As soon as Hagar realized her pregnancy, what happened? She became proud. and uh, She had proven to be able to do something that her mistress had not been able to do. She had proven to be more fruitful than Abraham's first wife. And so Hagar began to think of herself as better than Sarah. It tells us that she began to despise her mistress. And I imagine some of that uh, derision toward her mistress was in the fact that her mistress had abused her. You know, I doubt that Sarah asked Hagar, would you like to uh, lie with my old man? (laughs) I doubt she asked her permission. I mean, and that blew the rest of Hagar's life. What other Egyptian man would ever want to take her for a wife? I mean, it kind of killed her life. So some of that might be because of that as well. But being the servant of Sarah, she should have. She should have maintained the attitude of a servant. But because she had conceived a child of Abraham, who was like, you know, the king, the sheik of a, of a you know, rather large 
group of people, she um, began to feel superior to Sarah. So even if Hagar had not begun to show disdain for Sarah and to display her haughtiness and her pride, the impatient scheme of Sarah and Abraham was still destined to create problems. Why? Well, because, as I said, God had ordained marriage to be monogamous, one man for one wife. And so this was not at all his perfect will. Furthermore, the promised son who would carry on the line which would produce both Israel and eventually the coming Savior, that line was not to be and the Savior was not to be born of an Egyptian bond woman whom Abraham had obtained by way of his ungodliness down in Egypt. He had never belonged in Egypt in the first place. Rather, the heir was to rightfully be born from Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he was to be born in God's time and in God's way so that God would get the glory. You see, God was going to wait. He was purposely going to wait until there was no possibility of anyone denying that Sarah's conception was totally supernatural. It was totally a miracle. So he was purposely delaying, delaying, delaying. It probably didn't take more than a day or two of noticing Hagar's newfound arrogance toward her before Sarah, her anger, began to flare. What had begun as a seemingly noble and sacrificial move on her part soon became a very bitter pill to swallow. You know, it was difficult enough to acknowledge her inability to conceive a child and to ever hold a child of her very own in her arms, and it was a difficult enough thing to willingly share her husband with another woman, but then to be subjected to an insulting spirit by her own servant who had conceived her husband's child with such ease was simply more than Sarah could bear. And so she began to vent her anger. And who do you think she vented her anger on first? No. Abraham, her husband. When you get upset, who do you go to first? <laughs> you unleash it on your, the one closest to you, her husband. And we'll see that in a minute. If we look closely at Sarah's words to Abraham in, in verse 2, we find really that her goal was a desire to satisfy her own desire for a child. Actually, I thought it was interesting that it says children. I mean, she didn't want to just stop with one. She wanted to have children, plural. So you see, her focus wasn't totally on the heir that would carry on the messianic line. She just plain and simply wanted children. But really, it was, you know, for her own desire. She said, I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. So her primary concern was not really for the glory of God. And this scheme really would bring absolutely no glory to God, would it? Because it's just an activity of the flesh. It wasn't a supernatural thing at all. But the miraculous opening of her womb at a, when she had been barren all her life and then when she was beyond the age of childbearing, that would definitely bring glory to God. So theirs was merely a worldly, natural solution to a problem, the problem of barrenness. Now, one thing that almost always happens when people stop trusting God and try to handle matters in their own way and then find out that their circumstances get all messed up is that they blame shift. Okay, now we found this to be true when Adam blamed God for giving him the woman and then when Eve blamed the serpent back in chapter 3 neither one really taking full credit for their own disobedience to God's word. Well, this was true in Sarah's case as well. In Genesis 16, 5, she, did I read that? No, I didn't. Let me read that. It says, And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. This is a, a Sarah's anger. So she went in, and she was in effect telling him, you are the one 
who is responsible for the wrong that I am suffering with my handmaid. I brought her to lie with you, and now that you have given her a child, she despises me. So may the Lord judge between you and me. <laughs> so when difficulties arose, amen. <laughs> when difficulties arose, Sarah blamed Abraham for the whole mess. While not admitting, you notice she doesn't admit her own responsibility in initiating this situation to begin with. So can't you just see Abraham kind of sitting there in his tent, scratching his head, trying to figure out this creature named woman? <laughs> They'll never figure us out. <laughs> I always say to my husband, don't listen, to, don't listen to my words. Listen to what I'm really saying. <laughs> it's like the letter that this boy received from his girlfriend. It said, Dear John, I hope you are still not angry. I want to explain that I was really joking when I told you I didn't mean what I said about reconsidering my decision not to change my mind. <laughs> Please believe I really mean this, love, Jean. <laughs> uh, so Sarah's anger <clears throat> was, first of all, unleashed on Abraham, and she blamed him for the whole mess. But she also unleashed her anger on Hagar. In verse 6, we're told that uh, she dealt hardly, which means harshly, with Hagar. It says that at the end of the verse. It says, And when Sarai dealt hardly, it means harshly, with her, then Hagar fled from her face. So this hardly sounds like the sweet, submissive Sarah who is so highly commended in the Hall of Faith chapter, you know, over in Hebrews chapter 11, and as the model wife who is given to us in 1 Peter chapter 3 as the one, you know, who called her husband Lord. This doesn't sound like the same Sarah, does it? But it is. So surely this is a case in point as to how deceitful the human heart can really be and how quickly we can fall when we get away from trusting in the word of God. So there was terrible tension in the tent. Hagar got proud, Sarah got angry, and worst of all, really worst of all, Abraham abdicated spiritual leadership by allowing Sarah to do what she wanted with her handmaid. And that's what we read about in verse 6a. Look at it. It says, And Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. There was absolutely no justice and no spiritual leadership here in Abraham's remark to his wife. He neither took blame himself for the messy situation, nor mentioned Sarah's part in it. He should have reminded her, you had a little something to do with this, Sarah. But only Hagar is viewed as the one who is guilty by his response here. <clears throat> Rather than coming to the maid's rescue by reminding Sarah that it really was her fault, <clears throat> Well, actually, their fault, that they were together responsible for getting the poor girl pregnant. He assumed no responsibility at all. And he gave Sarah full reign to treat the poor maid in any way that she saw fit. So it is really a terrible blemish on Abraham's sense of leadership and justice. What he should have done in this situation was immediately take both women <laughs> to the altar, and he should have become the peacemaker. You know, I thought it was very interesting. Abraham was very good at dealing with men. Remember how he was such a great peacemaker between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen? I mean, he settled that situation beautifully. And he was so good in dealing with the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. But boy, was he a flop when it came to women. Remember what he said to Sarah back in <laughs> chapter 12? He says, you know, I'm fearful for my wife, so, uh, life, so, so tell him you're not my wife. And then he lets them carry her off. And now here, I mean, he's making another terrible mess when it comes to women. He just, he, he didn't do very well when it came to women. He just didn't understand them. <laughs> uh, so he should have taken them to the altar. He should have confessed his own sin before God, and then he should have done everything in his power to get peace between these two women. But he didn't do that. He abdicated his... Joe is really enjoying this lesson, aren't you? <laughs> He's 
smiling from ear to ear. (laughs) He abdicated his role as spiritual leader, and the consequences were that Sarah unleashed her frustrations and her anger on Hagar until Hagar couldn't take it anymore. What did she do? It says she ran away. She fled. So the remainder of chapter 16 focuses on Hagar, which is very interesting, really, because this is the first time so far in the Bible that the scripture zooms in on a minor character, shows us that God is concerned about the little people, you know, the common people, the disadvantaged people. And... uh, he, in his pursuit of Hagar, which is what we will see, God pursues her, he clearly wants us to see that he is very much interested in every person, whether they're Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, free or slave. He's in, interested in everybody. Because this is important for us to know. Most of us are nobodies as far as the world is concerned. And many of us, like Hagar, have been unjustly treated. You know, many of us have been used and abused or despised or neglected by those who should have protected us. Some of us have even been blamed unfairly for situations over which we had no control. So like Hagar, some of us might might simply have come to the end of our rope and responded to our circumstances by running away. But running away does not ever solve anything. Why? Because you know what? We can never run far enough to get away from ourselves, and we can never run far enough to get away from God. Hagar ran away, and guess where she headed? Straight toward Egypt, which was away from the promised land of God and also away from the people of God. Now, I admit, even though Abraham and Sarah had not, in this situation, acted very much like people of God. They didn't act very godly. Yet the, the fact of the matter is that they did know the true God, and they did not worship the gods, the false gods of the Egyptians. So she made a mistake, and in her distress, Hagar was not seeking God. She was somewhat, again, like uh, Adam and Eve, who also attempted to run from God when they got in trouble. So she was running really from everyone. Hagar was running from everyone. The good news, however, was that the same God who sought out Adam and Eve in the garden and the same God who sought out the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 also pursued this Egyptian bondwoman named Hagar. At a well in the wilderness, he appeared to her, and he introduced her to his fountain of living water. So let's look at the servant pursued, part three. And under this section, we're going to look at Hagar's water in the wilderness, then Hagar's wild man in the womb, and then Hagar's wakening at the well, and finally Hagar's witness writes some wrongs. So we'll begin with Hagar's water in the wilderness, verses 7 to 9. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid. See, notice he calls her Sarai's maid, not Abram's wife. Whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. Everyone in Abraham's household was doing the natural thing. And that's sad because God brings us the tests of life so that his children have opportunities to do the supernatural thing. You know, not what everybody else is doing, but the different thing. But if we look at it, it was natural, really, for Abraham to take a young woman to wife so that he might have an heir because his old woman (laughs) couldn't produce. And it was natural for Sarah to have gotten frustrated in waiting so long to have a child and to take matters into her own hands. That's natural. 
The natural man does that sort of thing. It was natural for Hagar to then feel pride when she was able to do something that her mistress had not been able to do. And it was natural for Sarah to then get angry with herself, but to take out her anger instead on her husband and also on her handmaid. And it was natural for Abraham to back off from his angry wife and let her vent her anger. And it was natural for Hagar to then run away from the abuse. So everybody was doing the natural thing. And consequently, Sarah Sarah failed as a mistress. Hagar failed as a uh, maid. And Abraham failed as the master. However, the only one in this tragic triangle... You know, if we put these three characters in contemporary clothing... This would uh, really be, you know, a situation which goes on literally millions of times every day. A man, a wife, and the other woman, right? It was very, very contemporary. So, but the only one in this tragic triangle who, whose natural reactions were understandable was who? Hagar. It's the only one who should have been doing the natural thing because uh, not only was she the innocent victim in this scheme, but she was the only one of the three who was not saved. She didn't know God. Abraham and Sarah both really blew a wonderful opportunity to see Hagar come to a saving knowledge of the true and living God because uh, they, they blew it because they had manipulated her. They had used her almost as if she was a piece of furniture. First they used her and then they abused her, so naturally she fled. But although Abraham and Sarah failed miserably in their display of grace with Hagar, the Lord did not. What God did with Hagar represents to us a lovely picture of salvation. And it really reminds me a lot of what he did with the Samaritan woman at the well. Unknown to Hagar, she was really in serious danger. She was in the wilderness of Shur. She was tired and weary from her long walk all alone. I mean, that in itself was very dangerous. But more seriously, she was in danger because she had turned away from the household of believers. And she was fleeing to a nation full of unbelievers. She was fleeing from the hope of the promised land back into the hopelessness of the world because Egypt is a picture of the world. So she was fleeing from God's will for her life. Yet God knew her situation. God knew her hurt. God knew her pain. He knew of her mistreatment. He knew everything, of course, because he's God. And he knew where she was every single step of her journey. So when she stopped at a fountain of water in the wilderness by the fountain, notice twice it says fountain, by the fountain in the way to sure it was time for God to intervene in her life and do what Abraham and Sarah had failed to do, and that is introduce her to the one who gives the thirsty soul living water. For the first time in the Bible now we are introduced to an important person, the angel of the Lord. You notice in verse 7, the angel of the Lord, mentioned for the very first time. He suddenly appears to Hagar at the fountain of water in the wilderness, and he asks her two questions. But before we look at those two questions, let's just discuss very quickly who this angel of the Lord was. There are two positions on it. One is that it was simply a very special messenger angel from God because the word angel actually literally means messenger. A special angel who ministered to people in the Old Testament in a very personal way and with the very credentials of God himself. <clears throat> However, there seems to be much too much evidence to a second view um, for me to be willing to accept the first view that this was simply a very special angel. And I have nine reasons why I believe the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate Christ. Nine reasons are given in your notes. Let me just mention a few of them. First of all, he promises to do what only God can do, and that's found in verse 10, that he will multiply her seed exceedingly. Only God can do that. Secondly, notice in verse 13 that Hagar calls him God. 
she calls him God. And only God, only Christ, excuse me, is a visible manifestation of God, according to Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.3. Also, at the burning bush, the angel of the Lord said to Moses these words. This is the angel of the Lord speaking. He says to Moses, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That doesn't sound like a special angel to me. It sounds like none other than a pre-incarnate Christ. Well, there are other reasons given um, to you in the notes. For one thing, it's interesting that the angel of the Lord is never once mentioned in the New Testament. If this was a very special angel, you'd think that he would appear in the New Testament as well. The reason he doesn't appear in the New Testament is because he is now in the New Testament, the Son of God. So I believe with all my heart that the one who appeared to Hagar at the well is the same one who appeared in the New Testament to the Samaritan woman at the well. And he is the Lord Jesus, the second person of the divine trinity, the one who came to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. And it was Christ who initiated the conversation um, with the, not only with Hagar here, but also with the Samaritan woman. Remember how he initiated the conversation? He asked her for a drink of water. He did that so as to draw her out and get her to see her sin and subsequently her need for living water. And he does the same thing with Hagar here. He demonstrated... Uh, first of all, his omniscience, that he knows everything, by addressing her as Hagar. He said, Hagar. He called her by name. Now, she's a long way from home. How would this strange man know her name? He calls her by name. He knows her position, that she's Sarai's maid. And in calling her Sarai's maid, that serves two purposes. First of all, it suggests to us that he did not accept her marriage to Abraham. In, in God's eyes, this was not a legal marriage. And uh, secondly, it reminded Hagar of her position. You see, it was her failure to keep in mind her position as Sarah's servant, which had led to the strife with her mistress and had then led to her fleeing, running away back to Egypt. So then the Lord asks Hagar two questions. He's already, you know, really gotten her interest here because all of a sudden this man appears before her, which I'm sure looked much more than just like an ordinary man, and he knows her name, and then he asks her two questions. You know, the Lord was notorious for asking questions, wasn't he? He's a master of questions that really would penetrate. He asks her, Whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? The first question had to do with her past, where she came from. The second question asked about her future. Where was she going? And aren't these the two most basic questions related to the gospel message? Aren't these the two most basic questions which need to be answered by every living person? You know, where did you come from? Where are you going? Think, people, think. <laughs> so Hagar needed to reflect upon where she came from, and all that had been involved in getting her into the mess that she was in. Why did she need to think about this? Well, because really the whole situation was a product of sin. He wanted her to think about sin. I mean, she wasn't totally innocent, was she? Because all have sinned. All come short of the glory of God. She also was a sinner, and that was evidenced by her pride and her haughty attitude. So she needed to seriously consider, too, where she was going. What would be the consequences of heading down into Egypt? Shur, the, the, where it says the wilderness of Shur, um, scholars have discovered that this was between Kadesh Barnea and the border of Egypt. So when the Lord meets her here in the wilderness at this well, she's only about one day away from the border of Egypt. So in one more day, she would have stepped foot in Egypt. What would be her situation there as a pregnant slave carrying a foreigner's child. Furthermore, what about Pharaoh? What if Pharaoh heard that this handmaid who he, he had given to Abraham, 
that she was back in Egypt. She had run away, and she was carrying Abraham's child. Remember the plagues that God had put on Pharaoh's house because of Abraham? Do you think Pharaoh would be very excited about hearing that this Egyptian slave had left? I mean, Abraham, I'm sure he would wonder if God would not again strike his house with plagues. So, uh, She needed to think things through here. And what about her spiritual needs? Would she find satisfaction for her hurting soul in the idols of the Egyptians? Did the world, did Egypt offer the solution for her real problems? Now, Hagar's response to the Lord really only answered the first question about where she had come from. And it was an admission. Notice in verse 9, it says, uh, she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. It's an admission that she was indeed a deserter who had fled away from her mistress. So it was an acknowledgement of her sin of being a runaway slave. Therefore, what did the Lord instruct her to do? He instructed her to do the right thing. He said, return to your mistress and submit yourself unto her hands or under her hands. And these are the same two commands which we also find in the gospel message. Return and submit. Returning speaks of repentance because repentance deals with turning around, you know, and going God's way instead of going our way. And submitting speaks of acknowledging God is our master and humbling, humbly serving him. But these were difficult commands for Hagar because it meant that she would have to humble herself before Sarah and subject herself willingly to any further um, harsh treatment that she might suffer at her hands. And it could well be even more severe now that she had run away. You know, to return as a runaway slave, Sarah could even treat her worse. So having given, given her such difficult commands, the Lord then, in his wonderful grace, was going to make it easier for her to obey these commands because he went on to give her some predictions about her future, her future, and also the future of the child she was carrying. And this information, you see, would comfort her and it would assure her that both she and her child would not only survive the return trip in the wilderness back to Hebron, back to Abraham and Sarah, but it would also ensure that uh, both she and her child would survive under the hands of Sarah. And these proclamations coming from the one who had so obviously had supernatural knowledge about her, these proclamations would make it much easier for Hagar to obey because she understood, and we'll see how well she understood everything, she understood that the one who was speaking to her was indeed the Lord himself. So let's look at the predictions, and this we find in verses 10 to 12, the predictions about Hagar's wild man in the womb. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Uh, That's where I stop. Okay. So the first promise that the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, revealed to Hagar was that he would give her innumerable descendants, you know, just as he had promised to Abraham. In verse 11, he told Hagar that she was carrying a child. Now, I don't know how far along she was in her pregnancy, but to have made that kind of trip almost, you know, from Hebron down to Egypt, she probably wasn't very far along. So I imagine it probably shocked her again that this strange person knew that she was pregnant. Not only that, but then what did he tell her? That the child within her was, he didn't even have to take an ultrasound test, he told her that it was a son and that she should name this son Ishmael, which means 
God hears. That's what it means. God hears. Although this would not be Abraham's heir in the covenant blessings, yet he would still enjoy blessings from the Lord because he was a son of Abraham. So God promised that he would multiply Hagar's descendants through Ishmael. And this he did because Ishmael is indeed the father of the numerous Arab peoples of the world. Now, in telling Hagar that she was to name her son Ishmael, the Lord was letting her know that he had heard her despair. Don't you know she spent a lot of time crying? He heard her. He heard what had gone on when Sarah had used her and when Abraham had used her and then when they had both abused her, one through harsh treatment and the other one through indifference and neglect. And he was here graciously telling her that she would not have to struggle or suffer through the years ahead alone because he would be there to hear hear her and to give her strength. He would look after her and he would listen to her. In another sense, the Lord was also telling Hagar's descendants, you see, that he would also always be available to hear their cries of distress and to meet their needs if they would simply call out to him, the one and only true God. And down through the centuries, some Arabic people have done that. And they have found that it is true when they call out to the true God that he is there and he does hear them and he does save them. However, most of the descendants of Ishmael have chosen to call on the name of a false god named Allah instead, the God of Islam. Well, in verse 2, it says the angel of the Lord went on to describe to Hagar her son's character. And I don't know if I would have been too excited to hear this about my son. (laughs) What? Verse 12, excuse me, in verse 12, because this isn't really very flattering. In the original, it actually says that he would be a wild ass of a man. Now, you wouldn't want to hear that when you were bearing a son, would you? (laughs) But that's really what it says. And this description, whenever it's used in the Bible, it speaks of an uncontrollable and very independent person. It was also a way of identifying Ishmael with the wilderness, where he would live by his skills as an archer. Uh, So then the prophecy of the Lord went on to say that Ishmael's hand would be against every man and every man's hand would be against him. And then it even went on to say that he would dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And that sounds innocent enough, but what it really means is that he would dwell opposite all of his brothers. In other words, he would set himself against all of his brethren. And this was a prediction that Ishmael and his descendants would be fiercely independent and that they would live as warlike nomads in in the desert areas. Not only was this prophecy, of course, fulfilled in Ishmael himself, whose very conception we see has already created tension, Uh, But the history of the Arab people is also a story of a very proud and independent people with a tradition of many, many disputes, even among themselves, you know, against their own brethren, and particularly against their brethren, the Jews. So this prophecy has come to pass. Hagar's experience with the angel of the Lord had brought her to a one-on-one, face-to-face encounter with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was extremely perceptive in what she had learned from this experience. And that's what we're going to look at next in verses 13 and 14 as we look at Hagar's wakening at the well. 13 and 14. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. See, even Moses says it's the Lord. This is Moses writing this. So even he says it's the Lord. Uh, This is the name of the Lord that spake unto her. Thou God seest me, for she said, have I also here looked after him that seeth me. She's admitting she's looked right into the face of God. Wherefore the well was called Be'er Lahea Roy, because, behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. 
Immediately upon hearing the divine promises and predictions about her and about her son and about her descendants, what did Hagar do? She began to worship and praise the Lord. Now, her honest and instant reaction really keys us into the fact that she must have learned really quite a bit about God during her years with Sarah and Abraham. So Sarah and Abraham weren't all bad. She had learned quite a bit from them. Her quick and ready comprehension of what was happening at the well on the way to Shur is very impressive. She had a life-transforming experience here at the Wilderness Well. She was awakened to the truth that there is a God who hears men and women, even ordinary, common men and women in their affliction. Unlike the idols of Egypt, the God who met her at the well knew her name. He knew her circumstances. He knew her future. He knew her child. He knew the child's character. He knew the child's name. He knew the right thing for her to do. And best of all, this God, unlike the false gods of the Egyptians, he genuinely cared for her because he is the one who who pursued her, right? She was fleeing from everything that had to do with him. He's the one who pursued her to bring her to a knowledge of himself. So she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. And in Hebrew, this is the first time we have this name for God. That name is El Roy, R-O-I, El Roy. Hagar was the very first individual to call God by that name. You know, God has many names. This is one of them, the God who sees. So the place where Hagar met the God who heard her, remember what's the name of Ishmael? God hears. The place that she met the God who heard her, Ishmael, and the God who saw her, El Roy, in her distress, which was at a well, in the wilderness between Kadesh and Barad was called Baralei Roy. That's a mouthful. And that means the one who lives and sees. You see, this was, uh, um, what's her name? Hagar named the well this name. So you see, it means that she understood that this was a living God. This was the God who gives life. And he stands in stark contrast to the dead, sightless, speechless, deaf gods of Egypt, which are just made out of stone and gold and whatever they were made out of. This was a God who gives life. In his grace, in Hagar's life, he brought her newness of life. He brought her living water to her parched soul. And then... Like the Samaritan woman at the well many, many centuries later, the first thing that Hagar did after meeting the second person of the Godhead was that she left, uh, she immediately left him to return to those whom she had left in order to share with them the good news about the one whom she had met at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman, woman did that? She even left, left her, uh, her jug that she had taken to get water, and she was so excited about the one who had just given her living water that she left the pot, the jug, and she ran back to the citizens of Samaria in order to tell them about the one she had met at the well. That's what Hagar does. She leaves the well, and I imagine she ran all the way back to Hebron to tell Abraham and Sarah about the one she had met at the well. So there's so many beautiful similarities here in these two stories. So let's look at verses 15 and 16. Hagar's witness writes some wrongs. It says, And Hagar bare Abram's, Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. In other words, he was 86 years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. 
Now, even though it was not an easy command to obey because she would be subjecting herself to the oppressive treatment of her mistress, yet Hagar did obey the Lord. The transformation of her life is seen, therefore, by her walk. She did a complete turnaround. Instead of continuing down to Egypt, she did an about-face and she headed back north to Abraham and Sarah in Hebron. She would obey the Lord, no matter how humbling and how harsh it might be to submit herself into Sarah's angry hands. You know, when we accept the Lord and when we believe his word, it should change our behavior. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We are enabled by his power in us to do things that previously we could not do or we would not do. Previously, she would not have gone back to Sarah. Now, we not only know of Hagar's salvation by her new walk, but also by her new witness. And this is indicated to us by the fact that when her son was born... Abraham named him what? Ishmael. Obviously, therefore, we know that Sarah had shared her encounter with God with both Abraham and Sarah. And obviously, they believed her. I mean, otherwise, why in the world would she have come back to them? You know, she was almost there at Egypt. Why would she have subjected herself to returning to them? And with such a changed attitude. Don't you know they must have seen a real change in her? Now, the evidence of Abraham's belief in what she told him about her experience at the well is that he did name the son Ishmael. And Scripture never tells us that God told Abraham what to name that son. God only told Hagar. You know, the individual who has truly, truly encountered God, who has truly been born again, will have very little difficulty in convincing others who also know him, that they have genuinely met him. And that's exactly what happened. When she shared her testimony with them, they believed her because they also knew the the Lord. And it sounded like something the Lord would do. Now, it's interesting. I'm almost through. It's interesting to note that there is no further mention in Genesis 16 of the triangular conflict between Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar, which had taken previously. In fact, for 13 years, there is no more tension in the tent. No more, at least not recorded, no more conflict until Ishmael himself living up to his prediction here at the age of 13, initiates conflict when he begins to mock his little brother, Isaac. But we won't see that until next year when we get to chapter 21. From later chapters, we find that Sarah took no interest in taking the son of Hagar to be hers, as had been her original scheme. She doesn't take Ishmael as her own son to raise. Who raises him? Hagar. It's also interesting to notice that Ishmael is referred to three times in verses 15 and 16. You can circle them and see as the son that Hagar bare, not the son that Sarah bare, even through permission by the Hammurabi Code. This was not the promised son who would carry on the messianic line and receive the covenant promises of God given to Abraham because he was not the son who Sarah bare. Ishmael, it tells us in Galatians, was the son who was born after the flesh and not after the spirit. Now, how do you suppose that Sarah behaved when Hagar returned with her amazing story? Well, we don't know precisely how Sarah reacted, but we do know that she did take Hagar back. After all, God had made it very clear that he cared about this slave girl and and her child. So, you know, who was Sarah to mistreat her when God heard Hagar's distress and also when God was watching? I mean, that was a real reminder to Sarah to be careful in what she was doing. So the lesson to us is not to be impatient. 
to not run ahead of God and not try to take matters into our own hands. Impatience never solves problems. It generally just makes them worse. Many times, as with Sarah's impatience, um, it will result in a mistreatment of other people. Impatience can do that, and it can cause us to be impatient and mistreat others. It may also result in long-term consequences. I mean, how many young people have, uh, how many unwedded mothers are there out there? Or how many young people have had to get married because of impatience? How many abortions have been committed because of impatience? How many people have married a person that was not really the one that the Lord had in mind for them as his perfect will because of impatience? How many people have overdrawn uh, credit card bills because they simply have to have something right now and they're impatient? Sarah and Abraham's impatience has led to both the ongoing Israeli-Arab conflict and also to the rise of Islam which was founded by Muhammad, who was a descendant of Ishmael. Impatience also leads to the collapse of a believer's witness. Sarah and Abraham had both made a terrible mess of their witness to God with Hagar. Had it not been for the Lord's direct intervention, Hagar would have gone into a Christless eternity. Impatience in a believer will generally cause him or her also to fall back upon the world and use its carnal solutions and plans and ideas to get what is desired. And what does that do? It leaves absolutely no room for God to get the glory. So what do we do if we have been guilty of being impatient toward God Uh, his will in our lives? Well, two things. Number one, first of all, we should go before him and confess our sin of impatience because he will forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then secondly, what should we do? We should obey by being patient. Just that simple. We must be patient. He will accomplish his plan and purposes for our lives, everything about us, our children, or whatever we're involved in. He will accomplish those purposes in his way and in his time. That's the hard part, in his time. It says in Hebrews 10:36, "For ye have need of patience." Isn't that an understatement? For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Let's cling to that and just be patient.